I want to tell you a story about sound. One particular sound so indescribable and yet tangible. It all happened one afternoon when I was doing laundry in my Brazilian hotel and I heard it. A spacious wave of rumble hit me. Pigeons flew in the sky when the noise came and I was speechless. I had no clue what the sound was or where it was coming from. All I knew is that I had to find out. Later that day, I asked a friend to go towards the sound with me, and we arrived at an event. A reggae concert was starting. In the deafening noise, I saw the two large sound system radiolas. They towered over us, close to 10 feet tall. The rumble now had turned to reggae, and everyone was dancing. The city of San Luis in the northeast of the country is the reggae capital of Brazil. And the most important way to carry the sound in the Brazilian airwaves is with a radiola. Without the radiola, reggae would not be what it is here in Maranhão. We don't know who, when, how, where, or why reggae got here. Quem responder essa pergunta, Whoever answers that question will win millions. <laughs> hey, I'm Thatcher Warkas, and this is Object Obscura. The historical investigative podcast about people, objects, and their stories. This is episode 17, Radiola, Reggae, Revolution. In the second season of the podcast, I'll be mentioning a lot about Heavy Ver. It's an area in the historic center of San Luis that has shops, restaurants, and the oldest buildings in the city. As the only French-founded city in Brazil... The 17th century historical center is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. I'm with my friend Victor again, walking around Heavy Ver, and he points at a museum I'd never thought I'd see. The Museum of Maranhense Reggae. Apparently, this city is the reggae capital of Brazil. So they built a museum which opened here in 2018. We went inside and took the tour, and there stood the radiola at the very end of the museum. It's a giant DJ booth with a back panel of electronics and a clock. And in front is the main station for the DJ's tool set, with knobs and small speakers. The entire radiola is covered in a layer of gold paint with red writing on it. It looks like an arcade game. Uma radiola. A radiola, it's a giant sound system. É um sound system. A radiola do Maranhão, ela... And the radiola of Maranhão, it prioritizes the bass sound, the double bass, and the bass drum. Da bateria. This is Adamar Danilo. He's a journalist, radio broadcaster, and the president of the Museum of Maranhão Reggae. We are in his office at the back end of the museum. 
when I ask him about the radiola, the large gold one. In the museum, it's the number one piece, the radiola Vos de Oro Canarino. It's the name of the radiola from the guy who made it, called Serralheiro. Serralheiro. So the radiola in question was created by a man named Serralheiro. His DJ nickname means locksmith. He apparently handmade a lot of things out of scrap metal when he lived here in San Luis. Adamar hinted to me that Serralheiro made this large radiola from scratch with his own hands in the late 1970s. To Adamar, these radiolas are essential to the story of reggae in the state of Maranhão. Without the radiola, reggae would not be what it is here in Maranhão. The main consolidator of reggae in Maranhão was the radiola. It was the radiola that took and that received reggae. People carried it out with them in the neighborhoods, in the cities, at parties, in the festivities of saints. The radiola is fundamental in the history of reggae. So long live the radiola. Então, viva a radiola. So nowadays, the word radiola, radiola in Portuguese, is an open term because it can mean any large sound system or boombox that generally plays reggae music. The first time the word radiola was ever used in relation to music was by RCA for their new record players in the 1920s. But the radiola didn't catch on in Brazil until the 1970s. O reggae era uma música do gueto. Reggae was ghetto music, just like here. When it arrived, it was appropriated by the poor and the black population in the outskirts of São Luís. That was the world where reggae got here. We don't know how this came to be. This population appropriated reggae in the early 1970s. In the mid-1980s, more than 10 years after being in Maranhão, the middle class learned about the existence of reggae. The thing is, like Adamar mentioned, we don't know when reggae came to Maranhão, or Brazil for that matter. How do you investigate the origin of a musical phenomenon? How does the fervor for music travel across borders? Can something like that be pinpointed in time? Well, the first start of that answer lies within the continual practice using the loudest hagiolas and how that evolution has been maintained. This hagiola is one of hundreds that exist today, where they are transported to festivals and events throughout the city. The culture of large sound systems is not only restricted to Brazil, though, but Jamaica as well. The first giant sound systems date back to the 1940s there. But Brazil is the only place to call it a hagiola. I've listened to more reggae music in six months in San Luis than my entire life in the United States. It is an understatement to say that reggae is everywhere here. This is a recording of a bar on the corner next to where I live. There were two speakers put in the back of a trunk of a car blasting 1980s reggae. I've seen boomboxes, radiolas, and speaker sound systems on top of buses, 
on the sides of roads, and even in the most remote places you could think of. So right now, I'm in the middle of the Lensonis Marinenses Park. I recorded myself on a three-day hiking trek across the Lensonis Marinenses Park for another podcast project. Our hiking group here stopped in a remote village where generations of this family have stayed decades before the park was ever founded. I had no idea that what I was about to see would change my whole perspective on Brazil and music. Oi, tudo? Como vai? Tudo certo? So, just to give you context, I saw a hagiola, or four boomboxes stacked on top of each other in their remote home. This is in a village in the middle of the largest freshwater desert in the world. This park, that is geographically larger than the city of Sao Paulo, has only four families continually living in the dunes. They are so remote, the closest city with any assistance is about three hours by ATV. So how did the Hagiola get here? I honestly don't know. In this recording, the house's owner said that he would turn down the sound when different trekkers arrived. So sound is everywhere in Brazil. Whether it's singing live karaoke or playing a reggae record as a DJ, Brazilians in Marinho want to make noise and share it. Atualmente, Currently, reggae is in the entire society of Maranhão, in all age groups, young people, elderly people, all social classes, from the upper class, middle class, to people with less money, less favored people, all social classes, all age groups, all neighborhoods in Maranhão. Todas as classes sociais, todas as faixas etárias, todos os bairros, é parte da nossa vida. So reggae today is something that is part of our life. But if you had to state exactly when reggae got to San Luis, you couldn't find an answer. Não sabemos quem... We don't know who, when, how, where, or why reggae got here. Whoever answers that question will win millions. <laughs> it's a phenomenon. It's a big phenomenon. Most of them are over 70 years old. These are Jamaican idols. For us from Maranhão, it's the artist tracks from Bob Marley and Jimmy Cliff. We like reggae that almost doesn't exist in Jamaica anymore. And that's a phenomenal difference. And when we talk about reggae's history in Brazil, it's something entirely different. It has its own roots and groove. O nome do museu é Museu do Reggae Maranhão. The name is the Museum of Reggae Maranhense. Our mission is not to tell the story of reggae in Jamaica. Our mission is to tell the story of reggae in Maranhão. And this story of reggae in Maranhão is so rich that she has a museum of her own. Reggae Maranhão cannot be discussed without talking about the racial undertones and prejudices that plagued the genre for decades. It was music created by and for people of color, singing about liberation, strife, and oppression. So Brazilians in Maranhão, a state with one of the largest black populations in Brazil, fell in love with music that moved them lyrically and rhythmically. O reggae já sofreu muito preconceito. 
Reggae has suffered a lot of prejudice, mainly two prejudices. Social prejudice, because it was music for the poor, and racial prejudice, because it was music for the black people. So we beat racism. Reggae is victorious, overcoming prejudice and discrimination. But prejudice and discrimination have not died. If we give it a chance, it comes back. So the struggle is constant. Então, a luta é constante. This fight for reggae exists in many pockets throughout the world, though, because anti-racial messages are not restricted to a country's border, just like reggae itself. The last reggae community I went to was in Berlin, Germany. So these global pockets of reggae have been cultivated for years in small communities around the globe. It's just that Jamaica was one of the first pockets to cultivate reggae into its own genre. Most reggae DJs and historians state that reggae started in the late 1960s as a combination of ska, American blues, and African drumming. And when Jamaican artists slowed down the beat to the New Orleans blues, the African drums would occupy the other beats with syncopation. But of course, this changes in every country that adopts reggae as their own. And in Maranhão, it's its own culture entirely. We have developed our own culture around a rhythm that is foreign. So, the difference is not in the instruments. The difference is in the evolutionary process of reggae music in Jamaica. Jamaican culture is completely different from Maranhão culture. But we approached a piece of Jamaican culture, and on top of that piece, that music, that rhythm, we created our own culture. And so it was people like Serralero, a reggae-loving DJ and record collector, who made this hagiola to define reggae in their own terms with their own sound. Every DJ in Brazil generally creates a name for their personal hagiola. This one is called Voz de Ouro Canarinho, the voice of the golden crane. During the interview with Adamar, I kept looking at it. It's so hypnotizing. Well, I was surprised to learn that Adamar had a closer connection to this hagiola than I thought. He actually knew Serralero. Ele era um pesquisador. He was a researcher, but also semi-illiterate. He managed to research about reggae. His full name is Edmilson Tomé da Costa, and he was born in 1941. It wasn't until his late 20s when his love for reggae blossomed and he looked abroad for a place to study. Serralero, we have his two passports, where he has over 50 trips abroad to Jamaica and mainly England looking for reggae. He barely spoke Portuguese, and he went to other English-speaking countries. He was so smart that he created it. He invented a kind of primitive Google Translator. With his illiteracy in Portuguese, turning to English was almost impossible. So before his first trip to England, he created an early translator from scratch. And what did he do? He asked several of his friends, including me, to record on a small, portable cassette tape recorder. He asked to record phrases in English, phrases from tour guides, phrases like, I'm hungry, how much, questions like that. And then he arrived in London. So the one thing I've learned about the life of a DJ in Maranhão is that you have to be a collector. Serralheiro was one of the most proficient collectors of reggae vinyl that the northeast of Brazil had seen. 
The most exclusive and rare records are called pedras in Portuguese. And it's a DJ's job to protect these exclusive records, pedras, while simultaneously sharing these new sounds with other people in the community. Serralheiro was getting so famous, he later earned the name Magnato do Reggae, the reggae magnate, as he would exclusively share his collections through the speakers of the radiola when he played at clubs. Não, olha, as, as radiolas não têm lugar fixo. The radiolas don't have a fixed place. All the radiolas in São Luís play in various events and bars. They tour every weekend, so there is no one place for the radiola. Então não existe um lugar da radiola. Another distinction between Brazil and Jamaica is a specific dance just done for reggae. Here, dance reggae is incredibly popular, where two people slowly grind and sway with movements that translate into English meaning little snuggle. This demonstrates how ingrained reggae is into the Maranhense citizens. But in the very beginning, before the hagiolas, before the dances in the vinyl, Serralheiro went searching abroad. In 1972, Serralheiro took his first trip to London. These trips abroad were the first introductions to a new sound that had never existed to him prior. There's one short documentary called A Jamaica Brasileira, a Brazilian Jamaica, on YouTube. I spoke with the director of the film, who had the pleasure of interviewing Serralheiro in his home. Here is Serralheiro in 2004, talking about the first time he bought reggae records in London. I was very regretful when I got to London after I went through immigration. And it was around this time, from the airport, when I saw that big city in front of me. I never regretted anything more than that in my life. My God, what am I doing here? What won't I do for reggae? After exchanging his dollars to pounds, he finally found the right hotel and a Portuguese maid was working there. That woman really helped me. She gave me a lot of store names and addresses. Then I took a taxi and I was off. I went to one of the stores she told me to go to. It was the Tower Records in London. When he came back to Brazil, Serralheiro would add to his collection. By the mid-1980s, the Brazilian reggae sound was growing. There were actually different local reggae bands and solo artists, like Tribu do Já and Celia Sampaio. But Serralheiro wanted to share his eclectic vinyl collection in bars and clubs, not necessarily create his own music. So the Hadiola was the best conduit for this passion, and the voice de Oro Caraninho was born. Agora com vocês, Serralheiro e a Radiola Voz de Ouro Canarinho. This news clip is from 1985. It was the first time the Radiola was shown to the public. Adamar Danilo was actually there at this event. And when was the first time you saw this Radiola? 1985 or 86? And I remember it. Yeah, everyone knows about it. I remember it and so does the whole world. Adamar made sure to tell me that there are close to 100 Hadjolas nowadays, but they were very personal in the beginning, including small aspects of your DJ personality on the Hadjola itself. Today, Hadjolas are generally giant speakers stacked on top of each other that can be as long as a bus. 
But the thing is, is that these personal questions seemingly can only be asked to the man himself. Unfortunately, Cejaleiro died in 2017, and it affected every music lover in the San Luis community. But Adamar gave me hope. Cejaleiro's daughter was still alive and wanted to talk. I only said it because his daughter didn't go to parties. His daughter doesn't know the radiola at all. She loves her father and talks about her father. Her love is not for the radiola, it is for her dad. I was intrigued. Who was she? And what stories could she tell us about her father, Cejaleiro? So if you want the radiola, it's not your focus. But if you want the story of the owner of the radiola, then the daughter is the one to talk to. Well, people make this show happen. So let us find the person closest to the Hagiola's owner, his daughter, Carlena Costa. I arranged a time to meet with Carlena in person. On a warm August afternoon, I met with her in the Museum of Reggae next to the large Hagiola. My name is Carlena Costa. I am the daughter of Serralheiro, and I came to tell his story. This is the second time on the show I've been able to sit down with the family of someone in front of the object they are connected to. It truly was special. Carlena is seemingly quite nervous. She's short and wears a nice black dress. She has large, woeful eyes just like her dad's. It's the same inquisitive squint I saw many times in his documentary. She's a lot younger than I expected. She was born in 1986, a year after the Hagiola was made. So is this Hagiola, it's from 1985, right? I think it was 85, because I was born in 86. Essentially, when she was growing up, it was just her dad and the Hagiola. Her mom left her at a young age, and it affected her deeply. My mother left me at the age of six. With him, it was just me and the Hajola, and he had to work. And when he was going to make the call on the Hajola, he would take me. I would go in a truck with the Hajola and with him. And it was a challenge for him because I didn't behave that well. At times during our conversation, she would point out things on the Hajola in the interview. One of them being these two corners on the back panel with four small pictures of religious saints. Smack dab in the center of these religious references was this Art Deco clock. Cejaleiro brought it back from London. And as we both stared at the clock, I could see that the Hagiola meant way more to her than just reggae. Because when I see it, and when I look at the clock he had and took care so well, I start to cry. Sorry. Because my dad, he was my hero. He raised me alone, he fostered me alone, and I want him to always be remembered. This is what makes her story so powerful, that not only is there a large physical memento of her father in front of us, but that his sound was just as memorable for the last 40 years. He just wanted everyone to hear his sound in an exclusive way. Do you know what is the most interesting thing? It is that my dad told me he had fans, a lot of fans, and I didn't believe him because my dad was always a simple guy. There were songs that no one had and no one could get. 
Here is Sahlero talking about the times people tried to steal his sound in disc collection. They would secretly record his music arrangement and play it around town without his permission. And when someone got a song and played it with me, he'd play it and I'd play a version of it and they'd say, but where does this guy get those songs from? And that's when they started coming after me. I'd play at a club and others would get envious. They'd rig up a connection behind my equipment with a long cord. I'd play at a party over here and they'd be taping my songs over there without me knowing it. They were recording there with that wire. I didn't know. They did that to me several times. This is Kathleen again. The sad thing is that none of them exist. I don't know if you know the history of his records. Do you know? People wanted to buy a record for him. They saw many things at my house. My dad, when he got into reggae, he was around 40, 50 years old. And a lot of people said to him, when you die, I'm going to look for your records. You won't sell them now, but I'm going to look for your records later. It's very sad that his musical creations were hard to find, but the way he shared his sound was staring right back at us. Bihajiola was a representation of his music, even if the last time it was used was five years ago. This Hajiola model had all the radio standards at the time. And did you know that this model you see here, this standard of radiola, was invented by my father? My father wanted to make a sound system model and he was always innovative. He hid and kept secret and he built his own radiola himself. This model was made by his own hands. This new model of Hagiola is what set him apart from other DJs. He always continued to update the look of the Hagiola. He was constantly adapting his physical creations and his oral ones. He never ever stopped recording his music. He was very meticulous with his things. He was too much. He would yell at us, don't touch my drawers. Not even us could touch his drawers. He would say, don't touch my tape deck. This here I organized. He was very meticulous and he knew the way he left them. If he left it in one way and we somehow moved it or changed it, he would know. Then he took it and made the DJ name and he started releasing it. People were fanatic about him, his collections, and of the Hagiola. But it is sad that there is very little of his creations left to hear. Well, Carlena might have the last recorded samples of his collection. Do you know what a tape deck is? She pulls out a personal fanny pack. It was actually the one he would wear while playing his sets as a DJ. Inside were three tape decks that belonged to him. Here are more songs from the records that he set on fire because he got mad at a guy. She told me stories that he would get mad at certain people who didn't respect what reggae represented. It was a competitive and cutthroat business. 
wanting to have your collection be exclusively public is a thin tightrope to walk on. He would set fire to a lot of his own tapes, one in distress, and go back out and buy more records. My father has always been a hustler. I don't know if you have heard his reputation that he was rigid. He was. He always had to have the final word. It is important for reggae to be cultivated in a way that made sense for Sehelero. If he didn't like his arrangement, he would discard it. He did have a lot of secrets, and they were kept in the Hagiola. Kahlena shows me his secret compartments she found when renovating the Hagiola before it was given to the museum. And these, these devices, when they were taken out of the original, they had a special compartment. They had locks inside. It was tough to remove. And it was a challenge for me because when I tried to remove it from one side to the other, it crashed. There was a lot of secret stuff on his hajol. This little box where the tape decks were, it had a compartment that apparently was for the tape decks, but they were the most valuable tape decks. Later, she stood in the middle of the hagiola, most likely where her father would stand and play music for hours. It seemed simple from afar, and now close up, it was pretty complicated. Like me, Carlena also didn't know how the hagiola worked especially the way her father meticulously worked on his own music compositions. Many DJs would be accompanied by MCs while they played their imported vinyl collection. But sometimes, the DJs would pre-record an arrangement of songs in a particular order. That, I believe, is why Sehelero used so many tape decks. Cajlena reminisced about the last times he played reggae. Actually, in the plaza next to the museum, he played many songs here when he was in his 60s. It was at the Rotatoria Club, and when I got there, I looked at a long line and I thought it was to enter the club. And now Walma asked me if I was in the line. I said I wasn't. I asked her if it was the line to enter the club, and she said no. It's a line to see Serralheiro. It was a huge line. People were happy, people were trying to touch him, see him, asking him for an autograph, and that impressed me. Carlena only got to see her dad in the mundane moments, not connected to his fame as the oldest reggae DJ in the city. Reggae was his world, and he got to bring his daughter on that adventure. But in late March of 2017, Sergio passed away from a brain vascular accident. He was 76 years old. In his life, he traveled to London 28 times, in Jamaica, 17 times. Edmilson Tomé da Costa, mais conhecido como DJ Serralheiro, era considerado um dos DJs com maior tempo de atividade no país. O Ademar e o Frank, me chamaram. When my father passed away. Ademar and Franklin called me and they said, 
Kahlena, the way the hajiola is, is not good, because the hajiola was not being used anymore. I think times got tough and it demanded that if you had the hajiola, that would require more expenses. So he decided to stop the hajiola, but they never sold it. But it was always close to him, so the hajiola wasn't in good condition and underwent renovations. I wanted to be the person to oversee it. Here is Adamar, the president of the Reggae Museum and a friend of Serralheiro from earlier in the episode. Serralheiro is a big name, so we bought the radiola. After he died, less than a year later, the museum opened and we decided that the number one piece would be his radiola. We negotiated with his family and the museum bought this radio. Having the hajiola here would be what he wanted. But I think for sure he did. It is the objective of the Voz de Ouro Canarinho for it to be remembered. Always. And it's always going to be here. And you're really happy it's here, right? I'm very, very happy. I made it a point of participating in its exhibition. I reformed this hajiola. And now, more than 35 years later, the Museum of Reggae and Adamar are taking care of it just like Serralheiro did. His memory is here and will never disappear from the airwaves of San Luis. His legacy? Well, the main thing I think he is very happy in heaven. Vajoro Canarinho is his greatest legacy, and his songs, they were innovative. It was new and fun for him because it was his life. It was his livelihood. It was fun and it was the way he lived. One of the best things I have in my life is reggae. It's my passion. There may be millions of reggae fans out there, but I think I'm number one because I'm truly in love with reggae. I chase after it. I fight. I spend what I make. Other Radiola owners out there know this. To get reggae songs, I really go after them because I'm in love with it. Reggae moves me. I can tell you this with all my heart. It was his happiness. He said he would rather die than not be at a reggae party because if he was going to live, he wanted to be at a reggae party. In the end, Serralero was an innovator of sound. From the speakers of his hagiola to the compositions of his tapes, Serralero will be forever remembered as the first reggae DJ in San Luis. Thanks to the efforts of Adamar Danilo and Serralero's daughter, the story will never be forgotten. Thank you for joining us on another Object Obscura journey, where every object has a story. This was a production of the Obscurity Podcast Network. 
Thank you to Adamar Danilo and the Museum of Mariansi Hagi in San Luis. Definitely go to the museum and check it out on Instagram, at Museo du Hagi. Thank you to Carlena Costa for talking to me in the museum and sending me many photos of her father, Sejaliero. This episode was written, fact-checked, and translated by me, Alessandra Medina, Aliani Miranda, and Ceylon Souza. This episode was edited by me and Ceylon Souza from the Radio Laboratory at UFMA. Additional thanks to Victor Galvão, Glazer Azevedo, Alessandra Vieira, João Marcelo, and Apoliana Santos. Thank you for the voiceover support from the following. Jeremy Tarbutton, Ben Hess, and Alessandra Medina. You can see the three-part documentary featuring Serralheiro called A Jamaica Brasileira on YouTube. This was an Anchor-distributed podcast. The theme song is Bateria Brasileira by Redeemin, with other musical accompaniments by Wilhelmina. All other song and archival credits are in the description. So please go to Apple Podcasts to rate our show. You just select the number of stars and can write any comment you desire. There is now a way to support us. There's a PayPal donation button on our website, object-obscura.com. I couldn't make the show in Brazil without your support, so thank you for what you feel like we deserve. Also, you can send me a message on Facebook at Object Obscura Podcast, Instagram at object.obscura, and Twitter at Object Obscura. It can be about an object you want me to research for an episode on the show or about anything antiques related. I will post all the pictures of this episode's object and the people you heard voices from on each platform. The next episode comes out in two weeks, on Friday, December 2nd. Well, I'm here in front of the Museo Geology. Let's see if I can... My memory was that it was a village, and I thought that somebody was in, like, kind of representative dress, like not Western clothing at all, more kind of tribal rainforest kind of stuff. I See you then.